like there's a judge that we face With no Christ and the lawyers bringing a briefcase Let's pray together, church. Father in heaven, it is good, it is good, O oh Lord, to be in this place today with the church. God, we're so grateful, Lord, for the relationships that you caused to develop. And God, we're grateful that for all who have named the name of Jesus as our Savior, we are united as brothers and sisters, and so, Lord, it's good to be here. Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for uh, your creation. We thank you, Lord, for your uh, revealed word in, in all creation, which declares that you are God. And we thank you for your special revelation in the scriptures, God, under which we put ourselves, God, under its authority, God, because through your word, you speak to us. And so, Lord, even now, as I open the Bible, I pray, Lord, that each passage that we go through and is we unpack this idea of what the church is, that you would speak to each of our hearts, God. Stir us, spur us on. God, be glorified in us, God. Lord, I pray that you would also impress within us the urgencies of, of eternity, Lord, today. Um, Lord, hell is a, a horrible place, uh, and it's real. And those who do not surrender their lives to Jesus will be there, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that we would not grow apathetic toward that fact, and Lord, I pray that also the glories of heaven, Lord, would be our delight and our joy. And those two truths of heaven and hell, that those things would spur us on in this life, God, as we await our last breath, Lord. And so with that being said, God, I pray you'd bless the other churches in our community that are seeking to reach the lost as we are and make disciples of those who know you. We pray, Lord, for, for City Lights Church, for Belmont Assembly of God, for Legacy, um, for... for uh, Chicago Tabernacle and Bethany Baptist Church, Lord. God, we lift up these, these church families, God. We pray that you would give them an effectiveness to reach their communities, God. That people who are far from Jesus would be brought near, Lord. Bless the, the pastoral leadership of these churches. Uh, bless the lay leaders of these churches. Uh, may their children grow up as well to love and know you, Lord. And Father, may their examples continue to spur us on here at the brook, God. And may we as one church, united, God, under the blood of Jesus be about your mission. So Lord, uh, we pray that your spirit would speak through me, that you would work in each of our hearts, God. Give us ears to hear, uh, not simply words, but what you want to say to us, and give us eyes to see the things that might be unseen otherwise. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And it's good, it's good to be here. Um, today we start a new series on the church, and I got to tell you, I am so amped about this series. Um, Jeremy and I have been talking about it for several months now, kind of um, trying to unpack what it's going to look like. And, and boy, today I'm just thrilled to, to begin it with you guys. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus tells Peter, he says, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Those words that Jesus speaks to Peter are powerful, church. You hear what Jesus said? He says, I will build my church. The church is not a man-made idea. It is divinely crafted. Jesus says, I will build my church. You didn't make it up. I made this thing up, and I'm building it. And then he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are the church family. Those words were spoken of you and me if you are part of the body of Christ today, which means if you put your faith in Jesus, you are the church. 
and we are the church as we're gathered. I subtitled this series, Flawed and Forgiven, Prized and Unparalleled. Now, we all know that the church is flawed, and we all know it's forgiven. We know it's flawed. It's pretty obvious. We're flawed people getting together in a a building uh, when we gather on Sundays or getting together in people's houses when we gather during the week. And we know we're flawed people. And that's not rocket science. But, But what sometimes gets lost, I think, is not that the church is flawed and forgiven, but how prized and unparalleled it is. Uh, I mentioned a few weeks ago, I, I get a little stirred within when I hear a lot of negativity directed toward the church. Not just the brook, but the church of Jesus. It's messed up. We know there's flaws for sure. But do we know it's prized? Do we realize how unparalleled it is? Do we realize how precious the church is in the eyes of God? And during this series, we're going to unpack various metaphors for the church. And I want you and I to see how precious it is to Jesus. In fact, in in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is standing on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. And he calls the church of Ephesus. He says, come here. Come to meet me at the beach. I ain't got time to go to you to your city. You got to come to me. I'm heading to Jerusalem. Uh, But this is going to be a bittersweet encounter, Paul tells them. He, He says... This is going to be probably the last time I ever see you guys. And here are these Christians who are there at the shores because Paul left his comforts to tell them about Jesus. He planted a church in Ephesus, and there they are. And when he's there, he tells the elders, the pastors of the church of Ephesus, and no doubt others were gathered, but he looks at the pastors and he tells them this. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You hear what Paul's saying there? He's telling the leaders, you shepherd the church, which Jesus himself, God himself, purchased with his own blood. So when people speak ill of the church, do we realize how prized it is that Jesus bought her with his blood. Paul elevates the identity of the church. Yes, it's broken, but yes, it's prized. And even the most messed up of churches in the Bible, like the church of Corinth, where there's lots of immorality going on, Paul says, hey, but you're saints. You're broken, you're flawed, but, but you're prized. To the church in Galatia that was letting false teaching embedded, Paul says, remember, Christ gave himself up for you. You're prized. Or the church of Hebrews, which is starting to get lethargic in their faith, starting to coast. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 12, he says, lift up your drooping hands. Get back in the game. Or the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus says, hey, you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. You're not good for drinking. You're not good for cooking. You're lukewarm. But then Jesus goes on to say, those that I love, I discipline Therefore, repent, because you're prized. Even the most messed up of churches, though they get critiqued, they're reminded of their identity, family. And all the churches in our community and all this world, including the brook, are prized. But the church is also unparalleled. Which other force in all of society, in all of history, can it be said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it? Not government, not militaries, 
It's the church that the gates of hell have no chance on the church's onslaught against it. The church is spirit-empowered. Go, therefore, make disciples. And he says, you'll be my witnesses, Acts 1-8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that's the church Jesus is talking about. It's the church that Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, therefore you go and make disciples. He, took that, he said it to the church. Not organizations, though they could do that. But it's the church that Jesus speaks of. One of my favorite statements in the book of Acts, chapter 17, when the church, um, I, think it's, uh, I think it's in Philippi at the time, they're, they're telling people about Jesus, actually it's Thessalonica. And while they're there, they're upset about all these Christians, these people who are leading others to Jesus, and they start arresting them. And they put them on trial, trial and they say this, these men have turned the world upside down. That's what the church does. It is a force to be reckoned with. The church is the people of God, the elect, the chosen by God to project his glory, to be his agents of the gospel, bringing redemption to broken people. That's what we are. And so during the series, we're going to elevate the identity of the church. Not that we need to elevate it, but it's already elevated. But we need to remind ourselves, this is what the church is. So as we look around, yes, flawed, undoubtedly, but yes, forgiven. But how about prized? And yes, even paralleled. There's a lot of misunderstandings about the church we're going to try to un- uh, bring clarity to during this series. Like when people say, I'm down with Jesus, but I'm not down with the church. That's like saying, Eric, I love you, but I don't care much about your wife. I told Erica, can I use that? She's like, Okay. See, the church is the bride of Jesus. And yes, there, there are different times we, we, we've received wounds. You may know of people, and you yourself may have been hurt by things that have happened within the church. We know that happens. Flawed, remember? Flawed. But forgiven, prized, and unparalleled. And so because of that, we can't say, I'm down with Jesus, but not his church. It's like saying, I'm down with Jesus, but I'm not down with obeying him. But Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And I made this church. You didn't make it. I made it. Therefore, be a part of it and be about my mission. Or sometimes the idea is that since there's so many churches, and that's a wonderful thing, and we need more churches to reach more people, but with that sometimes comes this understanding that we can shop around and hop around. And you know, church shopping and hopping is an idea that's not in the scriptures. Because we don't shop for the church. The church has been bought by the blood of Jesus. You're not the buyer. You are the bought. And so what we want to understand is that we are the ones who have been purchased. We don't go purchase a church. And so what that means is that we've got to find a church and be invested in it. And the people in your lives who know Jesus need to be a part of a church and invest into it with all of its flaws, knowing that it's forgiven and that we are about a mission. This is what God is calling us to. And when we talk about the church, we talk about theology. In theological terms, it's ecclesiology, which comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which is the word church. The ekklesia is the gathering, it's the assembly of the people. And we say it often, you're not at church right now. You're with the church right now. 
This building could burn down tomorrow. The brook will still exist. It's the church. It's the people. So today, this message, I'm going to, as I did last week, change things up a little bit in terms of how I'm preaching for you guys. I'm not going to expound one central text. I'm going I'm to jump around in various passages of the Bible. Some of the passages we'll go to. Other ones, I just want you to write down the reference. So if you don't got a pen and pad, pull one out. Pull one out. Look at the verses I refer to. And we're going to unpack this beautiful prize and unparalleled thing called the church. Well, the first question is, what is the church and why do we need it? The church is the people of God gathered under a covenant, making a promise together as we follow Jesus. But that all began in the Garden of Eden. We won't turn there. But in the book of Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were the only ones on this earth. God had given them instructions to eat of anything except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was in the midst of the garden. And they had this paradise-like place that they lived in. And yet there, Eve was tempted by the serpent. Adam did nothing about it. She took of the fruit. Adam was with her. She ate of the fruit, gave it to her husband. He ate of it as well. And sin entered the world. But notice what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. I'm going to read it for you. It says, And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. From the very beginning, we see that Satan's desire is to isolate God's people from God himself. And that's what happened with Adam and Eve. They distanced themselves from God because of their sin, and they hid themselves from the very one they needed for forgiveness. And from that point forward, we see this tension that God has made a peoples for himself, and yet because of sin, the peoples resist and push God away. But God is always drawing people back to him. In chapter 11 of Genesis, we see the Tower of Babel. And the people there all spoke one language. But then they say this in Genesis 11.4. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The great sin of the Tower of Babel is that they wanted to do life without God. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and they didn't want to be dispersed. They didn't want to rely upon God. They wanted to have a a kind of holy huddle, if you will, without God in the picture. They wanted to isolate themselves. But then in chapter 12 of Genesis, Abraham comes on the scene, and God tells Abraham, hey, I've got a plan for you. I'm going to make a people come from you, your descendants, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all people who would want to come to know this God would need to come and enter into the family of Abraham through faith. And that was what God did with the nation of Israel as we go throughout the Old Testament. And if finally we come to the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus says, I'm going to create a new covenant Not an Old Testament, but a New Testament, a new covenant with my people. And then Jesus says this in Matthew 26, when he took the cup and took the bread, he blessed it, he drank of the cup in this time, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. God is always trying to create a relationship with his people, and sin separates us. 
But then Jesus, right before his death, took of the bread and cup, and then on the cross, broke his body and shed his blood to make a new promise so that people can be, could enter into the family of God. This is what the church is. It is, uh, it is a correction of what was broken in the Garden of Eden. And so when people say, I want to do life with Jesus outside of the church, it's saying, I want to do life with Jesus outside of God's covenant. But God's saying, to be a part of the church is to be a part of my covenant, my promise, this contract between me and you. Well, how do we enter into this covenant with God? How do we become part of God's family? Well, it's it's through faith in Jesus. It's to believe that on that cross, he poured his blood and broke his body for you and took your sins upon him so then you could be forgiven and God's wrath is no longer directed toward you. And this is why we say, for all who put their faith in Jesus, you must be baptized. Because baptism is the public display of your entrance into the family of God. Baptism doesn't save you, but baptism is what declares that you've been saved. So baptism is our entrance into the covenant And then we have an ongoing confession that we're part of God's family. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Each time we're remembering that Jesus died for our sins and we're celebrating it, as Paul says, until Jesus comes back. This is all part of being the church. Forgiven by Jesus, baptized into his family, and celebrating the Lord's Supper until Jesus comes back. This is the church. Now there's also a couple other things about the church that are important to understand. There is a universal and a local church. And this is really important for us because we must understand that the church is the people of God throughout the world right now. There are churches throughout the country, throughout the globe. As you guys know, I went to Liberia this summer and I got to meet new churches, new people. And they're my brothers and sisters because we are all part of the universal church, even though they're not part of this local church here at the Brook. And so that's why we pray for other churches. This is why we're not competition with other churches. Why? Because we are all the church. The local church, the universal church. And this is why in this church, in this local body, we baptize, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we teach and instruct. If those things are taking place, it's not a church, family. It's not a church. And so there are a lot of times misunderstandings about the church. Oh, I get together with my friends. That's how I do church. That's not church. Church is where God's covenant is expressed and experienced and enjoyed through the Lord's Supper and baptism in which teaching is happening from the scriptures, where there are pastors who oversee you and where there's church discipline to keep us accountable. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And so what we're going to be doing this fall is finally introducing what we're going to call church membership, Um, what it means to enter into the covenant here at the brook. Okay, it's something we've been looking forward to doing from the very day we started. But in my timeline as as the pastor of this church is I knew we needed to establish elders here first, other pastors who would work alongside of me. And from there, then we would establish um, different uh, understandings and constitutions and bylaws and, and so forth to govern the church and then membership. And so we'll be talking about that as the fall continues on here and, and begin to introduce membership later this fall. Membership's not like a country club. It's not like your Sam's Club membership where you can say, you know, I don't know if I should renew it this year. I'm going to jump, jump over to Costco, right, or export, and you got the different Planet Fitness. I mean, that's, that's not church membership. 
Church membership is saying we are covenanting, we are promising together with my brothers and sisters to invest our time, to invest my, my treasures, my finances, to use my gifts to advance God's mission. And we are making a promise to enter into that together, submitting ourselves under God and under his word and under the leadership of this church. You don't get that at Sam's Club. This is the church. And so that's what the church is, called by God and collected by him. That being said, let's turn our Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 24. Jeremy read it for us earlier today. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. That's on page 1007. And feel free to take that Bible home if you don't own one. Hebrews chapter 10. We've established that the church is prized. That there's something beautiful about the church and our identity as the church. But then we get this instruction that's direct and to the point and much needed. Backing up to verse 23, actually. There to write it in Hebrews, it's talking about Jesus made a way for us to have a relationship with God. In verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 10, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The confession of our hope is Jesus himself, Jesus the Christ. He's the one that we put our hope in. But then in verse 24, he says this, And let us consider... How to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I want to make some observations for us in relation to the church in verses 24 and 25. Paul says, let us consider, he's referring to the church, how to stir up one another to love and good works. So as we get together as a church family, we have a responsibility toward one another to stir each other up to love and good works. Gossip doesn't stir up to love and good works. Criticism does not stir up to love and good works. Division doesn't stir up to love and good works. But loving each other, speaking life to each other, stirs us on to love and good works. And so this is why we gather together to encourage each other. You ever show up on a Sunday morning, you've had just the crummiest of weeks, and there's a brother or a sister who spoke a word of encouragement to you, and you felt like, hey, I'm leaving a different person today. That's what the church is supposed to do. Stir each other up toward love and good works. But we can't be stirred up unless verse 25 is true. He says, don't neglect meeting together. You see, there's something interesting about doing things one another so you can't do that by yourself. You can't stir one another up if you're in isolation. And so the writer to Hebrews says, therefore, don't neglect meeting together. And in our context, we would say that includes Sunday mornings, that includes during out the, throughout the week. We can't neglect meeting together because when we do that, we, uh, we start losing out on the ability to stir each other up toward loving and good works. He says, so don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some, but instead encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is the day of Jesus' return. So this beautiful church that Jesus himself made has a purpose. 
It creates a covenant. It gives us responsibilities. And now we have responsibilities toward one another. This is what the church does. The church alone, 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 is uniquely created, family, to glorify God, to magnify his name in a broken world, and to sanctify one another as we persevere. The church alone is uniquely created to glorify, magnify, and sanctify. So those are three things I want to unpack now for us. Talking about why the church. The church is not a static entity, but a dynamic assembly. It's not just something that coasts together, but it's active. It's not a lifeless object, but a vibrant people. And so we have, first of all, the responsibility to glorify God through our worship. Let's turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. It's in the New Testament as well. Only a few pages over from, from Hebrews to your left, where we were just at. That's page 976 in your pew Bibles. Hebrews, uh, Ephesians chapter 1. I love this chapter. We're not going to read all of it. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful passage talking about what God has done to save us. But in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 uh, through 6, I'm going to read here. Look what it says about us, the church, and what God has done. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every, see every? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, we did not choose him. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, the identity of church is one of people who are chosen by God. And I know this idea of the fact that we've been predestined by God makes some uncomfortable, but it's what the Bible teaches. And what we must do is we must look at it and say, God, you've chosen us, the church. You've predestined us, but for a purpose. And what's the result in verse 6? He says, it's the praise of God's glorious grace. God chose us to bring himself glory. He chose broken people the flawed that we talked about in order to show how great he is in his power. So we as a church have a responsibility to glorify God. Well, how do we do that? We do that as we live our lives, as we speak the gospel, as we, as we encourage each other, as we love one another, as the joy of the Lord pervades our life, even through life's trials. In those ways, God is glorified through you. That's when we're functioning as the church. We have a responsibility to glorify God. We also have a responsibility to magnify God. Let's turn a few pages over to Ephesians chapter 6. One way that we magnify God is by sharing his goodness with other people. Look what Paul says here in chapter 6, verse 18. 
He tells them to pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayers and supplication. And then he says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, that's requests, for all the saints. And he says, also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul says part of his mission as a Christian is to boldly tell other people about Jesus. He has a responsibility to magnify God, so much so that he calls himself an ambassador. He's a representative of God. The church has the identity and responsibility to tell other people about Jesus. That's why Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, telling them about me. So we've got to understand, we've got to send out missionaries and that we, the church, are the missionaries. We are the sent ones. I was listening recently to a a pastor talking about this, and I think he's spot on. He said, he asked, what's the greatest evangelistic tool to reach lost people in our broken world? And he gave a two-part answer. And the first one, he says, the greatest tool for reaching the lost is prayer. Prayer. And Paul says here, pray for me that I could speak the word more boldly. And also, also in our prayers is the fact that we can't change people's hearts. God has to do it. But the second most effective tool to reach the lost people is the church. It's not a program we run. It's not an event. It is the people of God on mission in your workplace, magnifying the name of Jesus. That's what the church is made to do. We glorify God. We magnify God. And that's what it means to be dynamic and vibrant. But there's a third thing that we do as the church. We sanctify one another through Jesus. The word sanctify means to, to make holy, to set apart. And there's a sense where in the church, we can do this uniquely in ways that other things cannot do. Encouraging each other to persevere in our faith. If you're like me, there are times where I'm just tempted to coast. There's times I fall on my face. I wake up discouraged. I'm not feeling like I'm wanting to worship God. But to me, it's the local church that spurs me on, that helps me persevere. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. I'm going to read for you guys here. It says, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. That happens in the local church. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That verse makes me and other of our leaders, our pastors here, uh, shudder in some ways. It says that we as, as pastors are responsible to keep watch over your souls because one day I'm going to give an account to God for the church. And if people don't park at a church and invest in it, there's no way the leadership can keep watch over their souls. And so part of mine and our elders are keeping watch over your souls is to live life with you and help you persevere when you're struggling to pray for you, to exhort you, to confront you, to love you in those ways. That's what helps sanctify us. That, that can't help happen in other places. That happens in the church. 
So if we're not invested in the church, we can't experience the keeping watch over our souls. That's why we can't neglect meeting together. The church keeps us accountable and helps us persevere. If you notice, what happens with all of us, when we're struggling, we isolate ourselves. Without exception, we isolate ourselves. But when you're isolated, you're no longer held accountable. And I see it time and time again, when we've isolated ourselves, we continue to drift and drift and drift and drift. And then we know we need the church again. We need Jesus again. But at that point, we feel guilty, and then Satan makes, makes us feel ashamed, and we continue that isolation. See, the church keeps us accountable, family. And don't let yourself get isolated. The church helps us persevere by instructing us. I'm excited. Starting next week in the series, we're going to unpack each Sunday a different metaphor of the church. The Bible says that we are sheep, and Jesus is our shepherd, which means we need to learn to hear his voice as a church. We're going to see that the church is called the bride of Jesus. He is the groom. He purchased us. And we're going to have a marriage celebration when we get to heaven. And heaven is an eternal honeymoon. That's why Jesus calls the church his bride. We'll unpack what that means. The church is called the body. Jesus is the head. We are the hands and feet of Jesus doing what the head tells us to do. The church is the building That's a metaphor. That's not literal because Jesus is the cornerstone that holds the building up and is built on the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. And now we continue the work of building the church. The church is called the family where God is our father and we are brothers and sisters and we live life like that, that instructs us. And lastly, we are the ambassadors. This earth is not our home. We are in a foreign land sent by our president, Jesus Christ, to represent him on this earth as sojourners and aliens. See, this is, this is the metaphors for the church that will spur us on and help us sanctify and grow in our holiness together. But there's another thing that helps us grow in our holiness that comes with accountability, and that's this thing called church discipline. You see, one of the beautiful things about the church is that we helped each other get back on course when we get off course. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 18. That's the first book of the New Testament. Matthew 18 is page 823 in your pew Bible. Jesus gives instruction of what it looks like to help the church, for the church to keep each other walking with Jesus. And God calls himself a loving father, and with those who he loves, he disciplines. And on this earth, the church is God's tool for discipline. And it sounds sometimes a bit difficult, but we know that when we've been disciplined as a child, it is for our good because it gets us in line. And so God uses the church to discipline his children so that we can walk with Jesus better. Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus gives instruction about this. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So we always say, if someone sins against you or offends you, talk to that person. When you've talked to someone else about it, you're starting to gossip already. 
Go and tell him his fault. Between you and him, what? Alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother and there's been reconciliation. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And we'll talk about this more in our membership class, what this all looks like. But I want you to understand that this is part of the purpose of the church. Verse 17, he says, If he refuses to listen, to repent because he sinned against you, even when confronted by yourself alone and with other people, he says, tell it to the church. And what that looks like for us is you come to the elders and leadership, and the leadership representing the church begins to move forward and work with the brother or sister. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now you must know a Gentile and a tax collector is treated nicely. They're treated as people who don't know Jesus. And they want them to know Jesus. And what Jesus himself is saying here is when someone who's part of the family of God sins against another and they are corrected, they are confronted, and they are done so by one, two, three witnesses, by the leadership, and then eventually brought in front of the church and they still refuse to repent, Jesus is saying that probably they're, they're, they're living as if they are not children of God. So therefore, treat them as an unbeliever, which means share with them the gospel. Bring them back into repentance. But Jesus says, take it to the church. See, if we're not a part of a church, we're accountable to nobody, which means we can live in sin and nobody will know it. And Jesus doesn't want that for the bride he purchased with his own blood. And so in the church, we function loving each other and bringing us back on course. We glorify God through our worship. We magnify his name being on mission. And we sanctify one another, holding each other accountable and helping each other persevere in our faith. That's what the church does. Calling each other to repent, to be listened to the Spirit, to not isolate and to walk in the joy of restoration. So the church is flawed. It's forgiven. But boy, it's prized, and there's nothing like it. It's unparalleled. There's nothing like the church. So don't fall into the trap of speaking ill of the church. Don't, don't fall into the trap of thinking negatively of it. But prize it. Cherish the church. And not just the book, but the church. Love your brothers and sisters within these walls and outside of them. And let's be about God's work. Here are three things I want us to leave with. The first thing is to lock in with the church. Lock in here with the church. Don't, don't just coast. Don't, don't, don't be a part of things when you feel like it. Lock in. Connect. And we'll talk about membership soon enough, but I need you to lock in with the church. Invest your time. Invest your money. Invest your gifts. And be about God's mission. Second thing is this. Love the church fiercely. Just love it. Take it personal when people speak ill of the church. Love Jesus so much that you love his people so much. And let the world see that we love fiercely, family. Thirdly, be about the church's God-given purpose. To glorify, magnify, and sanctify 
We are the people of God, the elect, the chosen ones of God to be about his mission. So I'm thrilled to see what he's going to do among us as we unpack the metaphors of the church and understand our identity. And as we lock in together, as we love together, as we're about God's mission together, I know we're going to see God do sweet things among us in leading others to Jesus and spurring one another on in our faith. I know I need the spurring on. I know you do too. If you've never put your faith in Jesus today, well, you're not yet a part of the church. You're not yet part of God's people. But God wants you to be part of his people. He wants you to, to be part of his family. And that happens when you turn from your sin. And your sin is anything that you say, do, or think that is opposed to God and his law. It's what's ingrained in all of us from the day of our birth. But as we ask God for forgiveness and follow Jesus and turn away from that mess, we then become adopted into God's family, the church. We then become part of these brothers and sisters. And then you are part of what is prized and unparalleled. And so my hope and prayer is that you would do that if you've yet to do that. Let today be that day of salvation for you. Let today be that day where you draw that line in the sand Say, God, I don't want to be one of your enemies any longer. I want to be a part of your family. We're going to close here by celebrating the Lord's Supper. We're a covenant community. And this is a way that we get to reaffirm our covenant to Jesus, our promise to follow him and reaffirm our belief that he died for our sins. Now, if you have not believed that, if you have not made that covenant, if you have not chosen to follow Jesus, we ask that you would not take part of the Lord's Supper, uh, the, the bread and the cup we're about to eat and drink here. And it's not a way to isolate or ostracize, but Jesus has made a clear line saying, this is my church, and my church will do this. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have the bread and the cup. Um, leaders, would you come forward and uh, pa- pass out the, the bread and then the cup, please? Um, ushers and, and leaders, either of you guys can do that. And as the bread and cup is passed out to you, what I want you to do is just to bow your head and just pray. Celebrate what God has done for you through Jesus. Ask him for forgiveness if you haven't done so. Just reflect upon his goodness to you. So we'd ask that you hold on to the bread and hold on to the cup. And at the end, when it's all passed out, we will celebrate of this together. All right? And again, if you haven't your faith in Jesus. Just let the, the cup and the plate pass by you, and uh, let's all just be thinking about what God has done for us here.